Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we will read from verse 44 to the end of the chapter. Verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man has found, he hides, and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but the bad they cast away. So shall it be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of God, as kingdom of heaven, is like unto a man that is a householder, who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, From where does this man have this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judah? And his sisters, are they not all with us? From where then has this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray again. Lord, I just pray that you'd take this time as we look at your word, as we seek to focus on your word and on the truth in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to focus and help us to see the amazing things that you speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Two questions this morning I'd like to ask you. The first question is, what is the most expensive thing that you own? Think about it. You don't need to shout it out for privacy reasons. <laughs> what is the most expensive thing that you own? Some might say, well, my computer, my car, my diamond necklace, my home. Second question, what is your most valuable possession? You might think, isn't that just the same question? <laughs> well, not quite. I did a Google search on what is your most valuable possession, and it was interesting that the, th the things that came up uh, were most often not things that you could buy in a store. You couldn't just go to a store and buy a computer or go down the street buy a house. The things that were most valuable to people were things like family heirlooms, signed baseballs, 
uh, one person said their children's teeth. <laughs> so the most valuable possessions, what was important to people, it didn't seem like it was just in money, in how expensive something was, but in things that had relational value. And yet, I don't think that if someone stole their family heirlooms or the children's teeth and gave a ransom for it, all, all that you owned, they would probably give up all their money for it, right? What do you think? <laughs> Say you have this really special heirloom or object that reminds you of someone that you love. If someone stole that and said, give me all your money and I'll give it back to you, do you think you'd give all your money up for it? Maybe some would. Most people wouldn't. And it's not because they wouldn't bemoan the loss of it. It just shows that something is more valuable than even those family heirlooms. And it's not the money. It's what the money can give them. It's their well-being. Their well-being, the money takes care of them. And that's more important than just owning, say, your children's teeth, as special as that is to you. Right? We have a, a DVD that we give away um, here at the bookstore, uh, Ray Comfort and Living Waters. They have this DVD where they go out on the street with a briefcase full of money and a gun. And they say, would you be willing to play Russian roulette and uh, we'll put a bullet in the gun and we'll spin it so you don't know where it is. And would you be willing to play Russian roulette for $10 million? So you're gambling your soul, basically. You're gambling your life. You're gambling your life for $10 million. And what do you think most people did? Did they do it? No. Because what's more important to money, to people, is their own lives. They wouldn't want to give up their own lives or take the chance of losing their life for a mere $10 million. Your life is too valuable to you. And there's a principle here. The principle is that you always will choose what you see as most valuable. If you have a choice between two things, your life for $10 million, you'll always choose between that which is what you see as most valuable. Now, there certainly are some valuables that one would even give all their money for and even their lives for. For example, if you have children and someone kidnapped your children and there was no possible way that the police could intervene and get your child back and the ransom price was everything that you owned or you, the children, child's going to die, don't you think that many people would give up all that they own to save the life of their own child? Some maybe wouldn't, but most people would, or many people would. They would give up all they own for their own child, showing what they value most. I heard just the other day, Brad shared with me that there was an Australian mother who gave her life for her child. The child was about to be hit by a car, and she pushed the child out of the way and was killed. She gave her own life for her child. Whatever you're willing to give your own life for, brothers and sisters, is something that you value in the highest degree. Whatever you would be willing to give your life for. Jesus said, there's no greater love that you could do than to lay down your life for a friend. You cannot do anything more for a person than to lay down your life because that is 
the only thing you can give, right? That's the ultimate thing that you can give. You can't give anything more than that. And yet this morning I want to suggest or I want to draw our attention to this fact that the Bible tells us that there's something even more valuable than all these things, more valuable than all your money, more valuable than your children, more valuable than your own life. And just flip a few chapters over with me to Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus tells us, what is the most valuable possession that you own? Matthew 16, and I'm going to read 26. Matthew 16, 26, familiar verse. In fact, we can start in verse 25. For what? For whosoever shall save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus here tells us that your most valuable possession that you own, and each of us own one, is your soul. Your soul is the most valuable possession that you own. Your essential life, even if you lost your physical life, you'd still possess your soul. Your soul represents your relationship to God. Your soul is the most valuable thing, and nothing is worth more than your soul. You can't exchange anything for it. You can't give anything for another person's soul. You may be able to jump in front of the car to save your child's life, but you can't give anything to save your child's soul, and your child can't give anything to save your soul. In the end, each and every person must stand before God alone. Your most valuable possession is your soul. And the teachings of Jesus, what we've already seen in Matthew, he gives his teachings in order to lift our eyes to this, that our soul is the most valuable thing that we have and how the soul and the kingdom of God are related. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God. When he talks about the soul, he's also talking about the kingdom of God and when he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about your soul. If you don't enter the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, you lose your soul. If you enter the kingdom of God, you gain it. You keep it. Jesus says that you can only end up in two places. All of his teachings draw our attention to this truth, that you will ultimately only end up in two places, either in the kingdom of God or not in the kingdom of God. That's where you're going to end up, whether you jump in front of a car for your child or not. You will end up in one of two places, in the kingdom of God or not. Jesus describes not being in the kingdom of God in the most horrific terms. He talks about, he, he likens it to being thrown into a furnace of fire. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that the way into the kingdom of God is by righteousness. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be taken care of. Don't make your highest concern what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Seek first. He's saying what is most valuable is your soul. Seek first 
Don't seek first the well-being of your children. That's important. Seek first the kingdom of God. Take care of your soul by seeking first God's righteousness. Jesus as the Messiah, when he came, contrary to popular belief, didn't just come to, to bring the kingdom of God in force. He came to bring a message about the kingdom so men might be able to enter the kingdom of God. He came to bring the gospel of the kingdom, it says in Matthew, the good news of the kingdom, that we can enter the kingdom of God, that our souls can be saved. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that your soul can be saved? That in the end, you don't have to go to a furnace of fire, even if you were to jump in front of a car for your kid, you can be saved. You can, and so can your children. The good news of the kingdom. And Jesus' parables that we've been looking at in Matthew 13 are all about our response to this message of the kingdom. You remember how we saw in the parable of the sower that contrary, once again, to popular belief, people thought at that time the Messiah was going to come and he would bring the kingdom by force. The whole world at that time would be converted to God. That's what the Jewish popular belief was. Jesus says, well, the Messiah shows up, brings the gospel of the kingdom. Some people don't believe. Some people believe for a time. Some people believe and bear fruit. Or the message of the kingdom goes forth, but then the wheat, those who accept the kingdom are there, and the tares, those who don't accept the kingdom are there, and they will grow together until the end of the age, which doesn't happen to be now, Jesus teaches. The disciples say, really? This is new, unexpected. Many will reject the Messiah. He's not just going to be irresistible. And all the parables point to this. But some will accept. As we saw in the parable of the sower, some will accept. And this morning, we're going to see what accepting Christ looks like. Okay? Some will accept. And what does it look like when they do? Jesus shows us in the parables that we read this morning. So let's look at Matthew 13, 44 and 45. Jesus tells us two parables that are essentially the same. The meaning of the parables of the treasure hidden in the field and of the pearl of great price are the same. The only difference between the first and the second parable is this, that in the first parable, the man happens to stumble upon this treasure. He wasn't looking for it. He didn't know there would be treasure in that field. He wasn't a treasure hunter. The man wasn't seeking the treasure, and he happened upon it. In the second parable of the pearl, the man is seeking a pearl of great price. So whether he wasn't seeking or whether he was seeking, that's not, that just shows the different ways that we can come upon Christ. But the essential point of the parable is the same. What you do with Christ once you come upon him. You see, it doesn't matter how you come upon Christ, but what you do with him when you come upon him. We've all come upon Christ differently. I'm sure there's some of us here that we, we came upon Christ by accident. Well, what seemed like an accident. We weren't searching. God was searching for us, right? We, we weren't looking for him. We weren't trying to understand the mysteries of life. We maybe had someone that we, we maybe were invited to church. Maybe someone went to church because they were uh, interested in, 
in a relationship with someone at the church, right? You hear that all the time. There's a cute girl, and I went to the Bible study, and there at the Bible study, I, I heard a message of Christ that I, I wasn't searching for, it, and I heard it and responded to it. You hear that? You hear testimonies like that, right? Or maybe someone's just uh, doing their groceries. They're not searching. They're not concerned about their soul. They're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And someone at the grocery store gives them a tract. Well, they take it and they read it and they become Christians. So there's an example of the first parable. Someone that wasn't looking. That doesn't mean you shouldn't look. That doesn't mean you should sit back and say, well, Jesus said you just stumble upon it. Fine. No, because Jesus tells you to seek. But thankfully, in the mercy of God, even for those who don't seek, they do come upon Christ. Or maybe you were seeking. Maybe you came to an awareness of your sin and were seeking forgiveness and were seeking life, realizing you were going to die, realizing is there hope for my soul? And you looked and you found. But again, the issue is not how you come upon him, but what you do when you come upon him. And in these two parables, what they do is the exact same. Now, I want to give my own little version of this in modern terms. Imagine, this is, what the, this is kind of the, the feel or the essence of these parables. Imagine you, um, you go to an abandoned house that's for sale. No one lives in it. It's been on the market for a long time. The bank wants to get rid of it. And uh, you just go there to take a look at it. You don't have much money, but you thought you'd take a look. And as you're going through this house and looking at it, and it's abandoned, it's kind of run down, it's not something you'd buy, you by accident hit this secret lever, and uh, a trap door opens, and you go into it and find there's all this treasure and riches in this abandoned house. And you're aware of the fact, you get it, that nobody knows about this treasure, okay? <laughs> this is something that's hidden in this house that nobody else knows about. And so you quickly close the trap door, and you think about it, and you say, man, <laughs> um, how much is this house? Okay, let's say the house is $45,000, and you don't have that much in your wallet, but if you sold everything that you had, you could muster up enough money to buy this abandoned house. Now I'm asking you, would you do it? <laughs> you don't have much money, but you have enough that you could sell everything and buy this house and then have an enormous amount of wealth. Would you do it? Yeah, as long as, it, let's say you, you, you're pretty sure it's going to be there. You, have, you, have, you know that no one else knows about it. Would you do it? Now, the ethics of these parables is not in view here, okay? Jesus is not talking about the ethics of this. He's talking about the excitement of it and the uh, interesting nature of the story. Now, you know what would, what would make your decision even more uh, strong? Would be if you were desperate for the money, right? What if you had a terminal disease and there is a cure, but you couldn't afford it? What if someone that you loved had a terminal disease and you couldn't afford it? You could muster up money to buy this house, but you couldn't afford this million-dollar cure, you're desperate for money. You find money. Man, wouldn't that change your decision? Wouldn't that make it even more obvious 
to do it and to sell everything you had to lose some to gain more. It would be a no-brainer, wouldn't it? And brothers and sisters, it wouldn't even be a sacrifice to sell all. What sacrifice is that? Give up $45,000 for billions of dollars? It wouldn't be a sacrifice. And this is what Jesus compares himself to in this parable. He says, believing the message of the kingdom of God and accepting the Messiah Christ and believing in him is like this. It's like the story that we've just heard. It's a no-brainer. It wouldn't be a sacrifice at all. And that's what it's like to become a Christian according to Jesus. Becoming a Christian is not a drag. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. It's not even a sacrifice. It's a joy when you see what it's all about. That's what Jesus says. Isn't that amazing? We often get a different impression. But this is what Jesus says. Accepting the kingdom of God is a joy. And it's not even a sacrifice when you see it. Christ is worth giving up everything for joyfully. Losing it all joyfully. Especially when you see you're desperate for him. Isn't that an amazing thing? Now, some of us maybe didn't become Christians joyfully, but this is how we ought to see what possessing Christ is all about. Losing all your stuff. Let's say it came down to it. The government said, you can't be a Christian in this country or else you'll lose all your stuff. Well, I'll lose all my stuff. No brainer. <laughs> well, your family will disown you if you become a Christian. Okay, I love my family, but it's a no-brainer. In fact, it's not even a sacrifice. You might even lose your own life. If you become a Christian, we kill you. And that's a reality in many parts of the world and in the past. Jesus says, you try to save your life, you lose it. Lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. No-brainer, right? What can you give in exchange for your soul? Jesus is worth giving everything up for joyfully, brothers and sisters. That's what being a Christian is all about. Losing what you think might be valuable, but really isn't compared to him. And I think more than just losing your stuff, more than just losing your family, and more than just losing your life, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 really touches the nerve of this parable. And I believe it's what Jesus is talking about in this parable, Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. You remember in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul, from verse 1 to verse 7, he says, there's a whole bunch of things that I used to think were valuable, right? I used to think all this stuff was valuable. I used to think it was gain for me, right? And what was it? It wasn't, it wasn't just material stuff. It wasn't material stuff at all. It was who he was, what he'd done, and everything that he thought made him right with God, right? It was all of his self-righteousness. It was all of his works. It was everything that he thought as a Jew was valuable to God. 
and was valuable to his soul. See, Paul knew the value of his Paul knew the value of his soul. Paul knew he had a soul. Paul wanted to enter the kingdom of God, and he thought, well, to take care of this, I gotta possess all these things. But something happened in this man's life where he came to write these amazing words, where he says, What things were gain to me? Those I counted loss for Christ. I count all things loss for the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. And that included also his relationships with people. He was then a hunted man after he came to believe in Jesus. They wanted him to die. But he's also saying, I didn't just count my own life not dear to myself anymore, but even all these things, I count them but done, he says, that I might win Christ and be found in him. There's the care of his soul, is it not? Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. See, you, you, you see in the words of Paul a joyful urgency, don't you? You see in the words of Paul a no-brainer situation, right? You see in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he's lost nothing to gain everything, right? To, to Paul, he's saying, it's all done. It's rubbish. It doesn't count for anything. It's loss if you think it's something. And the only thing that really is valuable is Christ. And it's worth giving up everything for him. It's not even a sacrifice. It's a gain. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in so many of his letters, do you guys know how rich you are? (laughs) Right? You who have believed in Christ, do you know how rich you are? You're the richest people in the world. The world thinks we're poor and pathetic, but do you know how rich you are? What you possess You possess true value. What is it to have Christ as opposed to not having Christ? What is it to hanging on to your stuff because you don't want to lose it for Christ? What is it hanging on to your family as wonderful as family is? What is it to hang on to your family and not have Christ? What is it to hang on to your own life and not have Christ? What is it to hang on to your own stuffy self-righteousness and be obnoxious for the rest of your life and go to hell and not have Christ? Paul says it's surpassing greatness to have Christ. What is it to lose all your family and your stuff and your life and to give up your self-righteousness and to not go to hell and to possess him? To know his love, to know his grace, to know the truth, to rejoice in the Lord always and forevermore. To keep your own soul and enter the kingdom of God. What is true riches, brothers and sisters? Is it so difficult to become a Christian? (laughs) Becoming a Christian is a no-brainer, a joy, 
once you see the value of Christ to your soul. And here's our principle again. You always choose what you see most valuable. You'll always act in a way that you think if, if you see your soul as valuable, then you'll always act in a way that you see as beneficial for your soul. And now you know why people don't become Christians. Because one, either they're not convinced they have a soul, or two, and this is true for the majority of people in this world, they are convinced they have a soul, but they don't see the value of Jesus. That's why they don't become Christians. To them, it's not a no-brainer. And as Christians, we've seen who Christ is and what he's done, and it's for us to tell people about the value of Christ. That's what preaching Christ is all about. Because when people see what Christ is to their soul, they will joyfully give up all to receive him. Don't you think this is the point of the parable of Jesus? This is what the kingdom of God is like. Whether you stumble upon it or whether you're looking for it, once you find Christ, you joyfully give up all for him. People don't become Christians because they've not seen the pearl of great price. And sadly, many people won't see the pearl of great price. The Bible does not teach what many people would like it to teach, this idea of universalism where everyone goes to heaven, everyone gets into the kingdom of God. The Bible does not teach that. Jesus does not teach that. Many won't be saved because they won't consider the message of the kingdom. Jesus' teaching is about our soul and about our need for him. They won't receive it. They won't consider it. God's word concerning their soul. Jesus gives the parable of the dragnet, of the net that catches the good fish and the bad fish. Some think this is talking about the church, that the church will be a mixed organization until the end, but I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. He's just saying the world is a mixed place until the end of the age. At this time, there are those who accept the gospel and there are those who reject the gospel. And at the end of the age, as we learned last week, Jesus repeats himself basically from the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says, the angels will come and separate the righteous from the wicked. Those who are righteous, how? Through faith in Christ. Because there is no other way to be righteous. The angels are not going to come and recognize in you righteousness by works, right? The holy angels from heaven who have been looking at God for a long time are not going to show up on your doorstep and say, you look a lot like God because you live a certain way. None of us have any righteousness except the righteousness that comes through putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. I want to be found in him on that day when the angels come, not having my own righteousness that's of the law, because there is none, but the righteousness comes through faith in him because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, bore my sins. He, by his blood, as we've been singing about today, makes us whiter than snow. So when the angels come, they'll recognize us as righteous. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what makes someone righteous. Being religious doesn't make you righteous. As you meet a lot of religious people in this world. They have absolutely no concept of the blood of Christ and what righteousness through faith is. Sadly, many people that go to church don't understand what righteousness through faith is. 
on the cross as we sung about, the power of the cross is that we are forgiven because he took our place. He took our sins and became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The cross, brothers and sisters, is the power of God to save us as sinners. We need to meditate on it. We need to think about it. We need to rejoice in it. We need to constantly draw our thoughts to the cross and understand this mystery of how we're righteous through faith in him. This is all of our hope and our peace. And those who are not righteous, Jesus says again, the angels will put them where they belong, in the furnace of fire. They lose their soul because they didn't possess Christ. It seems like the Bible and the, the teachings of Jesus often bear this sad echo or this sad perspective that many will reject him. And as we pass from the parables, we see this rejection take place in none other place than Jesus' own hometown. Jesus returns to his own city of Nazareth where people know him. People, he grew up there with those people. They know his family, they know his brothers, they know his sisters, they know him. And to their eyes, he's not any different than his brothers and sisters. They saw him grow up and he didn't have any different upbringing than his brothers and sisters did. They reject him. I want to suggest this morning that when we read about the rejection of Jesus from those that he grew up around, from those in his home city, we shouldn't think that they were angry at him. I think we feel that way because of verse 57, which says they were offended. And I think we think offended, meaning they were angry or upset at Jesus. But I don't see this in the text. The word offended simply means they stumbled at him. And I think it's not so much that they were angry at Jesus as it was they were indifferent towards him. He came in their synagogue, he preached. They might have said, that's nice, but you're nothing special. <laughs> you're not the Messiah. It's interesting that you can do these, you know, you have this wisdom and these deeds, but we don't see anything in you divine. They said, where does this stuff come from? That's a good question. Where does this stuff come from? That's an important question. Well, it didn't come from his schooling because we know it wasn't from school. Other people went to the same school and they didn't turn out to be uh, miracle workers and stuff. It wasn't from his parents. It wasn't from society. It wasn't from his surroundings. Brothers and sisters, where did this wisdom and might come from? It came from God. But they didn't see that because all they could see was the human element of Jesus and not the divine. And why? Because they said, we know this guy. He's not divine. Yeah, it's mind-boggling, but we know who he is. They weren't angry. They were indifferent. They didn't see him as the Son of God. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor. A prophet has honor but not in his own hometown. And the reason is not because they know him best. The reason is, is because they know him least. They know him superficially. 
You see, you can know a lot about a person and yet not really know that person well, right? And often that is the case. This principle is true, that you can spend a lot of time with somebody, and because you spend so much time with them, you think you know them when you really don't know them. You might know when they get up in the morning and how they brush their teeth, and you might know how they eat and what their favorite food is, and you might know what, where they went to school and all these things. But you don't really know that person because maybe you haven't asked what's deeper than that in this person. I know this guy. Do you really? And often the prophet, when he goes somewhere else to preach, he exposes that which is deeper in him, right? He goes to the synagogue. They don't know how he brushes his teeth. They don't know what favorite kind of food he has. They don't know his habits at home. But what they do know is what he's bringing forth from the deep. And so they know him better than someone who's closer in proximity to that person. A prophet is not without honor, but in his own home. Familiarity breeds contempt, so we say. But I would say it's so-called familiarity. Not true familiarity. And it's the same for us today. Many people think they know the Bible because it sits on their coffee table. Or they crack it open at church. They read it every now and again. They're familiar with it. Oh yeah, I could recite uh, the New Testament books in order. And I could tell you the story of David and Goliath. And we think we're familiar with the Bible when we're really not. We have a superficial understanding of it, a superficial relationship to it, and it's not deep. And I think even the same is true with Jesus. Many people, even today, they say, I know Jesus, I can tell you the story, and I'm familiar with it because I've grown up around the teachings of Jesus and I go to church and stuff. But do you really understand who Jesus is? Do you really understand that he is the Son of God? Do you really see the value that he is to your soul? They didn't take the message of Christ seriously, the message of the soul and of the kingdom. And it says in the last verse of our chapter, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And here we see that it is only unbelief that keeps men from Christ. J.C. Ryle wrote, we see in this single word the secret of the everlasting ruin of multitudes of souls. They perish forever because they will not believe There is nothing beside in earth or heaven that prevents their salvation. Their sins, however many, might all be forgiven. The Father's love is ready to receive them. The blood of Christ is ready to cleanse them. The power of the Spirit is ready to renew them. But a great barrier interposes between them and this. They will not believe. Jesus said, you will not come to me that you might have life. The greatest treasure in the world is standing before them, is standing in their synagogue, and they can't see the value of this pearl. So in closing, brothers and sisters, it's important for us to ask ourselves, have we understood all these things? Have we understood these things? Do you see in Christ the pearl of great price. Do you see the value that he is to your valuable soul? Are you a Christian this morning? 
Do you understand the state of your soul? Will you be in the kingdom of God? Are you righteous through faith in Jesus Christ? Is being a Christian to you a duty or a drag? Or is it a joy? Do you see how rich you are if you've believed in the gospel of the kingdom? If not, or if you've professed to be a Christian, but you haven't seen the joy of believing in Jesus, then you simply need to see the state of your soul as valuable, your desperate need for him, and his abundant goodness and love and gift to you. See that Christ is all you need, the surpassing greatness of believing in him, that it makes everything else look like dung. And if you are a Christian this morning, then rejoice as the same man who wrote about the surpassing greatness of Christ also said to us, rejoice in the Lord always. You have eternal life. You have the keeping of your soul. You are righteous and belong to the kingdom, not because of the good works that you've done, but because of his amazing sacrifice on the cross for us. And when Christ appears, we shall also appear with him in glory. We are so rich, brothers and sisters. And this is not a treasure to be kept to ourselves. This is a treasure for us to share with others. So let me exhort you that this week, if you see the value of this pearl, tell somebody else about the pearl of great price. If they're not a Christian, it's because they don't see the value of either their soul or of Christ. Tell them the value of their soul and tell them the value of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we do rejoice today in your son and we praise your mighty and matchless name for reaching down into this sinful world and meeting our desperate need and giving us more than we could even imagine. As you said, our eyes have not even seen and our ears have not even heard the things that you've prepared for us, God. How matchless, how unsearchable, how immeasurable is the value of Christ. Lord, open our eyes to see this. If we've never seen it before, Lord, if someone here has never seen it before, may they see the pearl of great price. And for us, Lord, who are true believers in you and true believers in your son, may you Give us a fresh vision of how wonderful and valuable Christ is and our soul is and how rich we are because we possess him. Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.